Hey everybody, welcome. This is another Psalm session and I am Miles and joining me over there on Zoom. This is another Psalm session and I am Brent joining you over <laughs> here on Zoom. Oh, someday we'll come up with a new intro, but it's not today. It's not today. Someday How are you, rainbow. Brent? <laughs> I, I'm good. I'm good. It's uh, it's a little frosty. It's a little snowy, but um, yeah. it's warm at the mic. Hey, um, I... I hate to start a show by airing a grievance with you, but I'm I I'm gonna do it. Um, Seinfeld alert! Seinfeld, Seinfeld alert! It's the airing of the grievances. We're a couple months past Christmas now, and I I'm noting that uh, you have not yet gotten me a Christmas present, and uh, it's okay. I wasn't expecting anything, but I just thought if you were still in the market, I could uh, give you a couple of suggestions if that's cool. He, he responds with the deer in the headlights look. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just, I was, I was reading the other day uh, and I came across this article about 10 of the most expensive guitars that have ever been sold at auction. And then I got to thinking, well, Brent hasn't gotten me a Christmas gift yet. So perhaps he could get me Jerry Garcia's custom Duggar when Tiger for the low, low price of uh, $957,000 US. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you've got nine other suggestions by the sounds of things with your list. Well, we don't need to talk about all of them, but I'm, I'm curious, no. who do you think, whose guitars do you think would have made the top 10? And you haven't seen this list. So no, no, I'm I have not. I'm curious if you can nail any of these. Totally on the spot. Um, I'm going to, I mean, as obviously duh, I'm going to say Eddie Van Halen, but I, I don't know if he's on the list. I'm going to say he's there's not on the list. Is there a Jimi Hendrix guitar on the list? There is a Jimi Hendrix guitar. Ladies and gentlemen, coming in at number three, Jimi Hendrix, 1968 Fender Stratocaster that went for $2 million. And interestingly, do you know who bought it? None other than Metallica's Kirk Hammett. Really? He's now the owner of that guitar for $2 million, and he loves it. Interesting. Uh, the, the other, just for fun, um, the other two names that I would have maybe thrown out as guesses would be, um, I would have said probably B.B. King and maybe Eric Clapton. Oh, there is no B.B. King, but Eric Clapton's Blackie, which... Uh, is a pretty sweet guitar. It is truly a sweet guitar. It sold at auction for $959,000 US. That's crazy. That yeah. is just insane. So it says the famous Blackie appeared in thousands of shows and elevated Clapton's sound. He stopped using Blackie in 1985 and decided to auction it to raise funds for Crossroads, his recovery center. Yeah, $959,000. Well, listen, if uh, if you're able to knock uh, a few, and I, by a few, I mean a few zeros off of that, um, I'll get you something nice for Christmas. That's awesome. Thank you. There's a, cool, a couple of cool ones here that are like honorable mentions, although we didn't even get to the number one, but there is a Keith Richards 1959 Les Paul Standard that sold for a million dollars. There is... Bob Marley's Washburn 22 series Hawk went for $2 million. Uh, but the number one most expensive guitar that has sold at auction was it? David Gilmore's Black Stratocaster. David Gilmore, of course, being of Pink Floyd fame. Yes. yes. And it sold for $3.9 million. Wow. Uh, to the Indianapolis Colts owner, Jim Irsay. Wow. 
Hmm. That's insane. That's insane. Um, so apparently David Gilmore held an auction, uh, actually in 2019 and he sold a ton of stuff and he actually sold all this stuff and he made 21.4 million dollars. Uh, and he donated the proceeds to client earth and environmental law charity that fights in favor of climate action. There you go. Yeah. 3.9 million dollars to own. David Gilmore's black Some nice guitars, um, some big money, and uh, some pretty cool names on there too. I'm I'm a little bit um, surprised that EVH isn't on the list. You, I would have thought that because he had a lot of really custom guitars, and I would have thought that they uh, they would have sold for a pretty hefty dollar. Yeah, maybe uh, it just hasn't reached the point in time where his stuff is hitting that kind of a market but that could be and it could yeah. even be that uh old wolfie's hoarding it like maybe he's not putting him up for sale well, i'd he, be hanging he, on to those I, I would be doing the same if i got to call eddie van halen dad it's, yeah. it's true i was gonna say i would i would keep my dad's guitars but my dad uh does not play guitar my dad does not play anything my dad uh yeah if you've heard my dad sing you would <laughs> we'll just stop there <laughs> yeah love you dad i know he listens too so love you dad yay <laughs> well ladies and gentlemen our guest today is absolutely no stranger to the guitar this gentleman is a guitar virtuoso with an impressive catalog of collaborative and solo work from classic rock to classical acoustic he's featured as lead guitar on six studio and three live albums from a little band you may have heard of called genesis his latest album, Under a Mediterranean Sky, dropped January 22nd and is an absolute gem of acoustic playing. Please welcome Steve Hackett. Steve, how are you? Uh, very well, Miles. Thank you. Nice to talk to you and to Brent. So, Likewise. Lovely. Well, thank you for being here. Congratulations on the new album. I have listened to thank it you. top to bottom. And as a classically trained musician, I appreciate everything that you have put into that album. It is gorgeous. Oh well, thank you very much. Uh, we just heard yesterday that it it um, uh, it went into the charts here uh, at number five, and then it's gone to number seven. This midweek chart thing, but we didn't expect it to go into the national charts. Uh, but it's very lovely, practically on the day of release, to find out that the album was has charted so high. So I wasn't expecting that because normally we think that's nice if that happens to rock albums, uh, let alone. <laughs> things that we might consider to be in a, in a more Cinderella-like style. Nobody yes. expects an acoustic album to do that, uh, but it's kind of orchestral and romantic, and um, and it's very broad-based, lots of exotica on it, Middle Eastern stuff, Middle Eastern instruments. And so I think maybe saying it's acoustic is a little bit misleading. It's Fair. probably more yeah. cinematic than that. That's fair. And and now this is your first acoustic album uh, since your critically acclaimed tribute album in 2008. So what is what has been your journey from there to here to make this new one? Okay, well, um, Tribute came out in 2008. Yeah, um, that one had um, six pieces of Bach on it and um, various composers, um, serious stuff. Um that in a way that was more of a guitar recital. Ever since then, I've been doing rock and roll shows that have been uh, part solo, part Genesis, Genesis revisited, 
keeping the museum doors open for the glorious old exhibits from Genesis <laughs> from the 1970s, from a time when John Lennon said that Genesis was a band that he was listening to right back in 1973 when we were still trying to break. We were touring America for the first time. So right up to the present day, 2008 to now, I've been doing um, lots and lots of touring, playing live, um, a little bit of acoustic during the show, but in the main, it's been it's been rock shows, solo stuff, Genesis stuff, um, showing up on, on other people's albums, um, doing albums of my own. Um, the last two rock albums have had 20 people on from all over the world. So this this sort of use of of instruments from everywhere um, has been a growing trend for me. Plus working with well-known uh, rock, I can only say virtuosos, uh, incredible teams that I've been working with in, in, in uh, recent years. Um, that's been absolutely wonderful. People like Nick De Virgilio, who you'll be familiar with in uh, the States, um, um, just recently, you know, working again with Phil Earhart, which is um, wonderful, of, of Kansas. Plus Craig Blundell, incredible British drummer. Um, there's been a lot of stuff. I, I, um, I'm, I'm amazed at, at the amount that's gone on, particularly during the lockdown. Uh, we've managed to get a live album out, a, a book, um, uh, this acoustic stroke orchestral album and then stuff continues stuff that's in the pipeline with some of the people i've i've mentioned that's brilliant steve it's uh it's interesting you mentioned the lockdown um the new album to me in listening to it really kind of offers uh, a bit of an escape from the stresses of life the last year and and how much we've all been uh, adapting um did the did the pandemic influence the finished product of the album as you were recording it uh, yeah, um, luckily, um, working with Inside Out, the, the, uh, a record company, um, they were open to the idea of either doing um, a rock album or an acoustic album. And um, because our American tour was literally cut in half um, as COVID struck, um, suddenly I had extra time back home in England. So... Um, I thought, well, we're in downtime. We can we can spend extra time on things. There's more recording time. There's more writing time. Um, I thought, what if we go to this album straight away? We're not able to tour, but perhaps we can create a kind of tour for people to escape and and visit places in the way that I've done. Luckily, with my my wife Jo, who suggested this whole concept. Um, we've had some marvelous visits to not just places that are on the touring map for musicians, but um, above and beyond that, um, visits to places such as Egypt and to uh, Jordan, to Petra, um, Indiana Jones type visits to places, and uh, absolutely wonderful. Um, uh, so those trips, they really stay with you. And um, and so, for instance, when we were traveling up the Nile and, and, and visiting all sorts of incredible things that looked like they were just built and painted yesterday, um, I have a notepad out and I'm, I'm 
always writing down ideas. Um, Egypt in particular um, seems to have that that effect on me. So I've got to describe this. I've got to be able to do what my dad did with paintings. He painted the world, my dad. I'm, you know, a great painter. And um, my way of doing it is is to do it with music. So these are landscapes and little films for the ear. And we have done some videos of, of, of uh, places as well. So um, uh, that's been really good. You know, so we can't get out there and play it in front of people, but we can take people to those places and um, make the travelogue or that sort of imaginary sojourn complete in a different way. And the way that you play, it is so beautifully adaptive to the genre that you're taking on. It's it's actually, it's almost hard to believe that the man playing on Mediterranean Sun is the same as Tubehead on your 2009 Out of the Tunnel's oh, Mouth album. Right. Have you always been interested in exploring everything the guitar can do? Is there one genre that really speaks to you above the others? Well, you know, when I was a kid, I listened to probably nothing but electric guitar. And, and then... Um, that all changed for me when I heard classical guitar being being played, and um, I fell in love with the idea of of that. And I thought, oh, I'm never going to be good enough to do that. Um, you know, I, I've just got to twang away in my own small way and use a, a plectrum, use a pick. And then I found that as I experimented over decades, um, I started to use the nails. I keep them pretty short. Um, so nail care is is important for <laughs> guitarists. There we are. People, you know, guitarists like to look at the length of each other's nails. There's my thumbnail. <laughs> my little pinky finger, that one, has got the longest, but that's so I can I can oh, scroll yeah. doing these sort of Spanish type maneuvers. Um, but I, they are the nails are stronger for having kept them short, and. Um, See when I'm filing, it's just just peeking out above the tip of the of the of the finger there. So nail files, and also to use a buffer. I, I don't take any, I don't put any lacquer on them or anything like that. I, I know that a lot of flamenco guitarists do, and of course they're paranoid about. Well, we guitarists, let's put it this way, you know, paranoid about losing a nail can be an absolute disaster for a live show. That's it. That's hell. But every now and again, that happens. But um, <laughs> it's obsessive, isn't it? Here's a guy this the story about Cliff Richard. Do you guys know Cliff Richard? He was yeah, a, yeah. A star in, in, uh, you know, he, he was making records back in the 1950s. I heard that he spent, um, he used to spend an hour on his hair every day, you know, to get that, that bouffant. And, um, and then Paco de Lucia, I, I, I heard... Um, used to spend an hour on his nails. And if you put the two together, you'd never get out of the house. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, we're, we're an obsessive bunch. We, we, um, we live performers. I mean, I guess you, you have to be. It's a, very, it's a very selfish thing, isn't it? Locking yourself away in a room for hours at a time. Rome could be burning outside. Meanwhile, guitarists are... Are going one two three four. <laughs> well, I tell you, Steve, I uh, I cheat and I I use these happy little uh, oh, how about metal, metal finger picks uh, wow. because I can't seem to grow strong nails. It's like my Achilles heel of guitar playing, so I have to cheat 
and use okay. the metal uh, the metal finger picks. Oh wow! Yeah. Okay, but um, you, have you tried them really short? The, the, the nails keeping them really down and fine. Yeah, them? yeah, and it, it helps. And it, it definitely and still helps, breaks but... for you. Yeah. Oh yeah. I'm, uh, oh. I'm 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 destined to have poor fingernails. <laughs> oh, but I'm sure. Things sure that I never thought get... I'd be saying to to Steve Hackett. Uh, you know, you, I have weak I'm fingernails, sure get, Steve. I'm sure you can get a great tone with those as well, and you just go with what you've got. You know, this well is as it. well. <laughs> this is it. We can nail it. Let's, yeah. uh, Steve. Let's let's talk about uh, technique a, a little bit. Um, sure. I think anyone uh, who knows you would would associate you with being a, a pioneer of. Uh, the the very famous two hand tapping technique that obviously yeah. uh, Eddie Van Halen used prominently. You can see the stripes behind me here. I'm a big fan. Yes. Yeah. Um, what would you say to aspiring guitar players who would look to emulate their heroes when they're learning to play? Well, um, I think a certain amount of emulation is is desirable, um, but. Don't forget about your own explorations, I, I would say. So the tapping wouldn't have come up for me and, and sweet picking. Um, these are techniques that I was using that other people ended up naming and octave jumps and all, all this kind of stuff. Um, but um, that's only part of it, isn't it, technique? Um, of course, the classical world is full of cover versions. That's what it is. Even the Berlin Philharmonic is a cover band. Wonderful, and the music is sublime, and you've got the most incredible players, etc., etc. But what the purely classical player misses out on usually is okay, a lifetime of learning to play Beethoven, Tchaikovsky, Bach, Rachmaninoff, all the rest, and one has to applaud the effort for them to climb Everest, and it starts at a young age to get muscle memory and all the all the stuff. But the self-taught player makes tons of mistakes and takes much longer to get there. So Everest takes much longer. But we discover things along the way because nobody slapped our wrists and told us that we couldn't do it a certain way. So I gather Paganini didn't hold the violin like this. He's holding it down here. On his on his hip, like a like a rock guitarist or something. Nobody told him that he shouldn't do that. I guess um, um, there are so many ways, and I, I do think that the classical world can be very, very precious, unfortunately, and and full of full of experts. Um, at the same time, you know, um, yes, it would be wonderful. I'd love to be able to sit down and play Chopin to you on the piano. Uh, but I realized that it would be a certain degree of sacrifice to do that. And um, I don't always agree with what Frank Zappa said, which was, you know, the main difference between classical players and rock players is that rock players want to get rich quick um, and the other guys want a pension. I, I, I think that there is somewhere between the two where you can be interested in music. You can you can em embrace both. Um, you're going to spread yourself more thinly, of course, and experts will tell you that you shouldn't be doing that. Um, but then what do they know? If we don't stretch ourselves, we won't be like character actors taking on different roles that, who knows? You know, Gene Hackman, fine character actor, 
also a star. Why not? <laughs> I, I would love to hear, Steve, about your take on, on or your, your method towards composition. Uh, where does a piece of music begin with you? Do you? Can you picture all of those parts when you're talking about a big orchestral piece, or do you start with a simple melody? What, what is your process towards composition? Well, I think that all music starts with a doodle. Let's demythologize it. Um, until you find something that you actually like, um, even if it's just a chord shape, um, there has to be building blocks. So um, usually, um, my, my technique these days, let's put it this, this way, is, is if I'm doing uh, uh, acoustic stuff, um, I've got a tuning that you might like to try. Um, the two bass strings go down a tone, and that is fairly standard for classical players. Um, the difference is I can use that to play in G major, D major, because there's lots of uh, 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 common strings for those two, two keys. But if I take the B string down one semitone, then I can play lots of regular shapes, but everything is a surprise. <laughs> and suddenly there's a whole new language out there. And um, I, I use it sometimes for the Middle Eastern stuff. Um, other than that, what I do is I doodle and I fumble and I make lots and lots of mistakes and I'm always trying to push the envelope uh, to play at a, at a higher standard than I'm actually capable of and eventually record something that's um, got a certain degree of pace and I might be aiming to do something that um, keyboard could do very easily perhaps. Um, I imagine that most fretboard players are, are jealous of the amount of notes that a, that a, that a piano, for instance, can, can reach because you've got that huge wingspan, that, that, that stretch. Um, we guitarists have to... Um, fool people into thinking that it's as unlimited as as the keyboard. I think that, that's the big challenge, but by using different tones and also I think working with reverb, um, the right kind of reverb, the right kind of compression, putting the mic in the right place, which for, for us um, these days is... Um, putting a mic about six inches away from the sound hole, pointing down, and we've been using um, an AKG 414. It's it's the microphone I've had for years and years and years. Um, I don't usually tend to record the guitar in stereo, so, so that's very simple. Uh, we do um, record digitally. Um, and, the, and the rest is, is just... Lots of right-hand techniques, trying different things, watching people. Every, you see, because I never had a guitar guru, I never had a teacher. <laughs> but that meant that every guitarist that I watched who was doing anything remotely interesting became my teacher at that point. So the guy playing on the street corner, the busker there, you know, 
playing down the, the underground, playing down the tube, the subway, that if he was doing something interesting, I, I, I would watch fascinated for a bit. Toss a coin into the the guitar case. Um, if everyone is 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 your teacher, you 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 can learn from me. You can learn from Eddie Van Halen. You can learn from Mystic Segovia. You can learn from um, oh God, you know so much, so much earlier. Stefan Grappelli, um, gypsy guitarists. Um, there's so much you can learn, and they're all different schools of of approach. Davy Graham, um, John Remborn, Bert, Bert Yanch, Peter Green, who passed on, um, Eric Clapton. I watched them all, and I pick, picked up techniques from everybody. Jimi Hendrix. Um, the list goes on, you know, just you see someone doing something and you're you're hungry for it. Absolutely. <laughs> That's an, it's an amazing perspective. And, and I think, uh, you know, a lesson for anyone who's an aspiring player to uh, to explore and, and to learn, as you as you say. I want to ask you quickly about um, your book. You, you mentioned at the, the beginning of the interview uh, releasing your book uh, last summer, uh, A Genesis in My Bed. I want to ask yeah. you, what was the inspiration behind uh, the decision to write the book? And was there one particular member of Genesis that you uh, would say you had the greatest musical connection with? Uh, well, I had a great musical connection with all of them. Um, it's it's a strange thing, isn't it? Um, I think it was my wife who said to me, first of all, you, you, you should write a book. And this was, we were talking about this 15 years ago, um, Work started, then there were lots of tours. We had to put it to one side. Um, um, and then I think, you know, for the last year or two, we were working like crazy on it. She was suggesting things to me. She'd written books herself. And um, so she's a great teacher. Um, she um, has also written songs and made films. Um and she's hugely supportive and very, very bright and very sweet. Um, and all of those things means that whenever she, she suggests something, it, 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 it's not a threat. So um, she suggests melodies to me. And um, really, she came up with the concept of this, of this album, making it as broad an acoustic album as possible. So I, I like to think that it's been the most broad acoustic album that... Um, that edit that anyone can make. Um, that was that was the plan because we we're, we're genre hopping. We're going pan genre. We're we're visiting cultures and then we're whizzing off somewhere else. There's Spain, the influence of that, the flamenco stuff. There's the classical stuff from, from Italy with Domenico Scarlatti. There's there's um, a bit of French stuff. There's some Greek stuff. She's suggested the melody, the main melody for the for the Greek the Greek stuff, which was the memory of myth, uh, and she suggested the whole plan for Turkish track, which is um, um, the uh, the dervish and the jinn. Um, uh, and so we were able to use world instruments, not just one kind of, um, not just the nylon guitar, which is 
the thing that binds it all together. Um, but um, the orchestral instruments, um, and I, I'm just trying to remember what it what it was all about. But but it, it took us about two months to put the thing together, um, and it it was a great virtual journey, and and to remember these extraordinary places such as Egypt that, that was, the, the effect was so strong. I remember the first time I was in Egypt standing opposite um, the Sphinx and I, you know, most people would just look at the Sphinx but I had my notepad out the whole time. It was as if the whole place was like an amplifier and it was screaming music and I just wrote it down. I thought, this is the most exotic place on earth. This is it. We've made it here. This isn't just in the movies. This is it. And my God, you know, we've visited countries that um, are extraordinary and, and Angkor Wat and Cambodia. My God, you know, some of the stuff that shows up in the movies, it, it, it just won't do to have it on a, on a, a Hollywood back lot. You know, you've got, you've got <laughs> temples that are being um, swamped in the sort of tendrils of, of trees um, gobbling them up. And uh, it's extraordinary stuff. To actually be there, so I recommend everyone to to travel and do that. And I think that broadens the mind, and I think it broadens the music. Absolutely, I love that. I love the passion that you speak with towards the work that you're putting out there. And I, I have to ask one last question here, and that's given your deep knowledge and the intimate familiarity that you have with so many genres and musicians and and the whole musical world. Are there any lesser-known artists that you really feel our listeners should be checking out? Oh, well, yes. Well, that's that's a, a, a very good question. I would say um, there are some people on on on, on this record. Malik Mansirov, who plays the tar. Um, it's ironic that he that he, that he can't play in 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 in. The, in America, because he um, he plays in a style called Mugam, which is like Arabian jazz. So you know, so he plays in in Azerbaijan, Turkey, Iran, Iraq, and because he's got those stamps in, in his passport, he's not able to get an American visa. There you are. Um, <laughs> but hey, you know, maybe we're we're heading towards more enlightened times. One hopes, uh, and I I really hope that people get to check out a guy who, to my mind, is. Um, it's like watching someone who combines the dexterity of of um, John McLaughlin with uh, the spirituality of um, thinking sitar player, famous guy who taught George Harrison, Ravi Shankar. You know, it's um, it's incredible to watch that. So um, I hope that, that that you know he he, he gains international stardom other people i think you know um i've been a long-term supporter of um buffy saint marie who um um extraordinary stuff almost like you know the the early stuff that bob dylan was doing um you know her commitment to social change has been unwavering and um the early love songs are just um so heartfelt it's um just so, so very, very beautiful. Um, yeah, young musicians. There's also a, a young drummer that I worked with um, a while back uh, called Hugo Dagenhardt, 
who I think is a is a phenomenal virtuoso who deserves to be more more well known. But you know, it's it's a very long list of people who haven't necessarily um, you know made a mark internationally, but um, uh, but deserve to do so. So I've been one of the lucky ones. Um, but you do have to keep coming back to the tables. You, you know, you make your own luck. You, if you walk away from the table, your card isn't going to come up. You know, you're winning number. So I'm very much a believer in persistence. And, uh, and if I had to add to that list of people who should be listened to, I would have to put in there, of course, Under a Mediterranean Sky, which did hit <laughs> uh, January 22nd. It is a beautiful album. Uh, we have been talking to Steve Hackett, who has had an, an amazingly distinguished career uh, of collaborative and solo work. Uh, of course, his work with Genesis, uh, the many, many studio and live albums that you yourself have, the the exploratory way that you express music is is truly amazing. And I, I know I can speak for Brent and I and all of our listeners uh, when I say thank you for joining us today. It has been an absolute pleasure and uh, all the best to you, sir. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful talking to you and, and all the best to you and the whole audience out there. <laughs> well, thank you so much. If you're ever in Canada, you, uh, you look us up and we'll, we'll oh, absolutely. get stage. <laughs> sure. All right. You take sure. care. Thank you again, Steve. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that was our interview with the most amazing Steve Hackett of that little band called Genesis. Uh, this has been a Psalm session, and uh, my name is Miles, and joining me over there, it is Mr. Brent. Uh, we just want to say thank you all for tuning in. Please do the usual thing, like, share, post, do all the buttons, and uh, please keep following us because we have some amazing guests lined up, and we are excited to bring them to you. Thank you all. Stay safe. Take care. Cheers.